way, bad news first. This place houses a security system that rivals most nuclear missile silos. First, we have to get within the casino cages, which anybody will tell you takes more than a smile. Next, through these doors, each of which requires a different six-digit code changed every 12 hours. Past those lies the elevator. This is where it gets tricky. The elevator won't move without authorized fingerprint identification, which we can't fake, and vocal confirmation from both the security system within the Bellagio and the vault below, which we won't get. Furthermore, the elevator shaft is rigged with motion detectors. Meaning if we were to manually override the lift, the shaft's exit would lock down automatically and we'd be trapped. Now, once we get down the shaft, though, then it's a piece of cake. Just two more guards with Uzis and the most elaborate vault door ever conceived by man. And you're listening to George Clooney and the boys plotting their caper. And that's Ocean's Eleven, the remake of the great, well, Rat Pack movie in the 50s. And by the way, Americans love movies about heists. The Italian Job, Goldfinger, the best James Bond movie about a big heist. And, of course, the scenes in Goodfellas about that epic Lufthansa heist in JFK. And what happened after, it really anchors the entire movie. And, well, we're talking about stolen things here in this segment. And that brings us to Nate Scott, who's written for USA Today, Fox News. He's at SB Nation now. But this is his own story and a friend's story about a stolen wallet. This is a story about one of my best friends, Riley Flaherty. Riley recently lost his wallet. It's a bummer, but it happens. He was at a Wilco concert at King's Theater in Brooklyn, and after the show, he took an Uber back home to Manhattan. And as soon as he got home, he realized he didn't have his wallet. Riley had a trip the next morning. He really wanted the thing. So he had the driver take him all the way back. He searched the theater, but nothing. Now it's three in the morning and Riley, dejected, heads back to Manhattan. He has some cash lying around, so he's able to go on the trip. But his wallet's gone. And so he does what you do when you lose a wallet. He cancels his credit cards. He actually was waiting on a new driver's license, so he got one of those. And he bought a new wallet. End of story. Or so you'd think. Because after that, a miracle happened. Well, a sort of miracle. A very New York miracle. Two weeks after he lost his wallet, Riley received a plain white envelope in the mail. His name was written in shaky handwriting on it. And inside was his license, his credit cards, and a note. The note read, Dear Riley Flaherty, I found your wallet, and your driver's license had your address, so here's your credit cards and other important stuff. I kept the cash because I needed weed, the metro card because, well, the fare's 275 now, and the wallet because it's kind of cool. Enjoy the rest of your day. Toodles. Anonymous. I've never been so conflicted about a nice gesture, Riley told me. The cash, gone. The wallet, gone. The Metro card, gone. But two weeks later, returned in a plain white envelope, a driver's license, and his credit cards. 
I had already gone to get a new license and had already gotten all my cards replaced, said Riley. So basically, it was useless to me. He did have this story, though, and no one can take that away from him. <laughs> and that's so true, and thank you, Nate, and thank you, Riley, for sharing that sort of humiliating story. It's happened to us all, and uh, I don't tell a lot of stories about myself, but I had, a, I had something stolen. By the way, we'd love to hear the things from you that got stolen, the most precious things, the stupidest things. But for me, it was a car. It was my first car. And it wasn't just any car. It was a car I'd wanted ever since I'd seen Steve McQueen fire up the Mustang Fastback, the 1968 Mustang Fastback, in the greatest at that time car chase ever seen in movie history. And again, the movie was Bullet. And check it out. It's still, to this day, as good a car chase as you can see and as gripping. And it was a GT2 Plus 2 the one in the movie, and he was chasing a Dodge Charger through the streets of San Francisco, uphills, downhills. It was just fantastic. And McQueen, of course, drove his own car. Uh, McQueen loved speed and ultimately loved racing cars. And so what did I do? Well, like lots of kids, we saw that movie, great product placement by Ford, if it was, and I wanted that car, and so I saved for it, and I got parts for it, and it was many years later, um, almost two decades later, that I was trying to assemble my own version of that bullet car. And not, well, not exactly like it. I couldn't afford it, but something close. And it had the V8, the 289 cubic inch V8. It had the fancy spoked wheels. It had the pony interior. It even had factory air conditioning, which was a drag and a real pain to get. Well, I took that old Mustang Fastback down to Georgetown from New Jersey. And Georgetown is in Washington, D.C. My buddies were there, and I wanted to show off the new car. It was finally ready to go. A little road trip down the New Jersey Turnpike, the Delaware Turnpike. Straight around 495, around the Capitol. Right down to M Street in front of Mr. Smith's. It was a rainy night. It was November. And my friends were in the front. I could see them in the front of the bar, so I just left that car running. And I went inside, and it was no more than a minute. And I came out, and that old car was gone. Long gone. And I cried. I mean, I cried. And then I screamed. And then I called the cops. And let's just say Washington, D.C. at the time, a call for 1968 Mustang Fastback redone. Well, that was a laugher when I told those guys what I'd done. And then the problem? Well, telling my dad. And, well, you couldn't lie to my dad. He was one of those old, well, sort of military types who you couldn't lie to. And I finally just told him what had happened. And uh, he said, good luck with uh, your transportation for the next couple of years. And that was it. I walked a lot. And I learned a lesson. Don't leave a car running with the keys in it on a crowded city street. <laughs> Pretty dumb, huh? My theft story. Nate Scott's story. Here on Our American Stories. And you can go to Our American Network to hear all that we do. OurAmericanNetwork.org That's OurAmericanNetwork.org Well, my goodness gracious, let me tell you the news. My head's been wet 
with the midnight dew. I've been down on bended knee, talking to the man from Galilee. He spoke to me with a voice so sweet. I thought I heard the shuffle of angels' feet. He called my name and my heart stood still. When he said, "John, go do my will. Go tell that long-tongued liar. Go and tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell 'em that God's gonna cut 'em down. Tell 'em that God's gonna cut 'em down." This is our American stories. You're listening to the one and only Johnny Cash. Not a lot of folks bump in with that song in particular. We love digging into the catalog of Cash. We love music on this show, and we love storytellers. And my goodness, was there a better one than Johnny Cash? Well, Greg Hengler's got a music story for us today, folks. Let's take a listen to what he's got. The role of a record producer can't be underestimated. They make singers into celebrities, and as we are about to hear, they can take has-beens and turn them into must-haves. This is the story of a friendship between the young record producer Rick Rubin and the aging rock legend Johnny Cash. Here's Rick Rubin. I think everyone benefits from having a producer just because it really helps having a sort of an impartial jury to make sense of it all. But there's no right or wrong way to do this. It's like any way you find the inspiration works. Jam means record. Death is short for definitive. Definitely the best record you could buy today. Here's Adam Horowitz from the Beastie Boys. When we first met Rick Rubin, I didn't know anything about production. I didn't think about production. I didn't know that it even existed. Rick definitely was into that. Luckily, he was good at it. You know what I mean? Like he could have sucked, and that would have been the end of it for all of us. Here's music historian Jason King. Rick Rubin started Def Jam, the massive multi-million-dollar enterprise, in his dorm room at NYU, and he went on to produce Run DMC,、uh, Beastie Boys, Metallica, and Slayer. He's produced Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Dixie Chicks. He's an incredibly diverse and wide-ranging producer. The reason that the artists might not all fit into one genre is it's not really the way I listen to music. I just like good music, and I try not to categorize it too much. In the early 1990s, Rick Rubin started a new record label, Def American, and he was really interested in testing himself as a producer. By that time, most of the artists I'd worked with were new and young artists, and it felt like it would be really.、Um, Interesting challenge to find a great older artist who'd been through a lot and maybe wasn't doing their best work at the time. And the first person I thought of was Johnny Cash. He'd been dropped by two labels. He'd already had a comeback, and that was probably 25 years earlier. Here's daughter Roseanne Cash. He thought people didn't care about his work anymore. He didn't feel the support from the label. He was floundering a bit. Here's guitarist Marty Stewart. Country music would have nothing to do with it. In the '80s, when I was in his band, we recorded album after album after album, and nothing happened. Here's Johnny Cash. Somebody stole all the magic, like in the '70s, some of the '80s. When the magic of the music was gone, 
and I was just doing it because I do it. I was just doing it because that's what I do, and I hate that. A friend of mine set up a meeting for us. He was playing at a dinner theater in Orange County. It didn't feel like a place that was appropriate for someone of his importance to be playing. It just was sad. My contract was running out with the other record company, and uh, Rick Rubin came down to see me. And uh, I liked the way he talked. You know, he talked like he reminded me of uh, Sam Phillips. And I said, what would you do with me that uh, everybody else has tried to do, you know, and couldn't? And he said, well, what would you like to do? We always started in my living room just with a guitar and talking about songs. Back about 18 and 25, I left Tennessee very much alive. And I would have him sing me songs from his childhood. He played me songs that they would sing on the cotton fields when he used to pick cotton. The Tennessee stud was long and lean, the color of the sun and his eyes were green. He really gave me a tremendous education in this lost music that I didn't know anything about, and I loved it. Heard a little baby on the cabin floor, little horse cold playing round the door. From the first time that we met, we recorded everything, just had the machine going all the time. It becomes second nature. People forget their recording and just sort of be themselves, and that's the goal to get to that point. The first album we made was mostly solo acoustic. And then it came time to do the next one, and you had Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as the backing band. Here's Tom Petty. I never pick cotton. Rick's idea was to set John free and let that artist live. My daddy died young, working in a coal mine. John would start to sing and we get kind of a feel for how the arrangement might go, and then, woof, everybody jump on to their respective instruments. And it was fast cars and whiskey. Here's guitarist Mike Campbell. I mean, it was raw, and at times it wasn't musical, but it was so real and so heartfelt that it, it almost brought me to tears. But then Rick would really try to push Johnny to do things that he would never think of doing. I played Johnny Cash the Soundgarden song Rusty Cage, which is a heavy metal song with Chris Cornell singing in a very high-pitched scream. And Johnny listened to it and just shook his head, and he's just like, I, I don't really know what you're thinking. Like, I, I don't, um, can't imagine myself doing it. And then I made an acoustic demo of it. Bit by bit, Rick guided us through the arrangement, and there it was, you know. You wired me awake and hit me with the hand of broken nails. Johnny was really happy, and he said, I love this. This is great. He goes, this is going to piss off so many people. I'm going to break. I'm going to break my. going to break my rusty cage. 
It don't hurt anymore. A lot of the job is that of being a therapist, of being there and uh, really hearing the artist and hearing what their vision is and really setting up a place where they feel they're safe and can be vulnerable and show themselves completely. And at last I am free. The infusion he gave my dad of the old confidence and passion was so powerful. I mean, Rick was like an angel who came in to say, remember, this is who you are. That I cared so I mean, it was as simple as that. Remember. And it's wonderful now. I don't hurt anymore. And great work on that, Greg. And wow, what a thing to say about somebody. He made me feel safe, vulnerable, and he allowed me to be myself completely. It's just beautiful. And that is that is really what record producers do. It's what great directors do in the end. And really, that's really it's actually what good bosses and parents can do. Johnny Cash's story, Rick Rubin's story. Actually, it's a love story. If you read A Man Called Cash, you won't believe it. It is a love story. Because one man's love of another saved the guy's career and resuscitated a career that a whole new generation of MTV viewers listen to Delia's Gone and so many of those great Deaf American records. If you've never heard them before, go on Google, put on Johnny Cash and Rick Rubin and just sit down and listen. And that the background and backup band was, well, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers? And they were just serving Johnny too. The record labels got it wrong. Rick Rubin got it right. What an American story. What a great music story here on Our American Stories. When the man comes around... Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Voices calling, voices crying Some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come the whirlwind is in the thorn tree The virgins are all trimming their wicks The whirlwind is in the thorn tree This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between, stories about love and death, and things you care about. Send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll listen to them, produce them, and get some microphones over to you, and get a team out to you, and get the stories on the air. I would say one in five of our stories now are coming from you. And our next story, well, Alex Cortez brings it to us. Here's an unusual college president. Look, I was all over the place. We served in Germany, in Korea. I was in the 101st Airborne Division when we went into Iraq in 03 as one of the first groups across the border after shock and awe. I served a year in Afghanistan managing construction in, in Bagram for a year. The Army gave me more than I ever could have given it. Mike Rounds is an unusual college president of an equally unusual 
college. We have so many employers that want to hire these guys, not just for their skills, but for their character, for their leadership abilities. So we say, if you're a company you want to hire, you pay us to come to these career fairs. The two career fairs we had this year, we ran out of space both times, and we had a total of 175 companies from 14 states, and that's to hire 76 seniors, right? So that's crazy. I mean, there's no other school in the country that can say we have almost twice as many employers paying money to try to come and hire these guys than we have students. And it's a trade school. <laughs> Williamson College of the Trades. In today's culture, it's become, well, you know, um, if I don't want to take advanced placement philosophy, write essays that are going to get me into, you know, Harvard, well, if I tell a counselor that I'd rather work with wood, now I get treated a certain way that isn't always very good. You're a Votech kid. You're not motivated. For our guys, they like to work with their hands. So they like the idea of working with wood or being outside or building something or fixing something. And so looking at that young man and saying, look, your abilities, desire, skills, interest in working with your hands is nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, we need guys like you. Our two oldest sons graduated from Princeton, and I tell people this all the time. I mean, great school, but I don't believe that they had all the Princeton graduates multiplied by 1.5 or 1.7 companies competing to hire those people. They just didn't, and I don't think there's anyone else in the country that can claim that, but we have it right here twice a year. You can come see it for yourself. And these kids with two job offers on average went to a college that's free if you can believe that it was founded by an awesome dude named isaiah williamson to be free vision of a philanthropist a quaker here in philadelphia he was a very wealthy man and um but also very frugal and who said i see these poor young men on the streets with no future and i want to build a school where free of charge they can get training in a trade and an education, moral and religious, and exercise and recreation to become useful, respected members of society. When he passed away, he left a million dollars to endow the school and a million to build it. So for 130 years, it's been doing that. And so it's still, every student that attends here is completely funded room, board, and tuition. Outside of a few student fees, and then equate to probably less than $2,000 over the three years that they're here, everything is provided for them. And they're all young men from some pretty extreme need. We have over 400 applicants for only 100 spots, so we focus on the young men that first have the capability and the desire to go through this challenging program, but then the next default goes back to who has the most financial need. And that's the neat part of it. This run really like a military academy. Early morning, they're up, they clean their room and their common areas. They come out in front of the flagpole, 715, and they stand at attention and watch the flag go up and get inspected for their appearance and breakfast and chapel. And we pack their day full of class and shop and activities. So it's an intense environment. They have to be clean shaven. The first two years, the senior year, they're allowed to have a, uh, a neatly trimmed beard or mustache, but that's part of the inspection in the morning. Their shoe shine, do they look presentable? They have clean clothes on. They're all in coat and tie. Well, you can imagine that, you know, most of the kids that come here have never owned a coat and tie. So we actually have a clothes closet. People donate gently used coats, suits, shoes, belts. And so that's what the guys wear. Every day when they come to line up and every meal, they're in coat and tie. 
and then when they go to the shop, they change into their shop clothes. But that, that's another unique part of Williamson, I guess. But why wear a coat and tie at all? I mean, it's not the uniform for most trade jobs. It's interesting, where did that idea come from? It's kind of been here forever. One of the reasons was that when Mr. Williamson wrote his deed of trust, he designated a board of trustees, and on that board of trustees was a guy named John Wanamaker. And John Wanamaker's famous store in Philadelphia, and for many, many years, they would go down to Wanamaker's store and they would fit them with two suits. And it was always part of the culture here. Years later, that dried up, but then the idea of continuing to have them in coat and tie. And just to give you an idea, last year's freshman class, when we averaged the family's taxable income per family member, it came out to $4,200. So very few of them have owned a coat and tie. And we don't have a uniform factory putting them in a uniform, but to say this is our standard and we recognize that you probably we don't have the means to acquire that stuff, so that's why we run the clothes closet. And I really think that it changes even subconsciously how they view themselves. And I think they really feel like they're part of something special, maybe for the first time in their lives. And it's how they carry themselves, how they think of themselves. It's all part of that. And I think having them dress the way we have them dress and groomed the way that they groom is all part of building that confidence in themselves. Is zero tolerance for drugs and alcohol. So, I mean, one offense, you're out. As a Catholic, hearing that was painful. I'm Catholic too, and I, I'm, a, I'm a social drinker. I like beer, but I always tell them the story that, hey, I was a lieutenant colonel in Afghanistan for a year, and general order number one was no alcohol. And I like beer, and I like to drink socially, but I knew the rule was the rule. And I didn't argue with it, say, oh, I'm a colonel, I shouldn't have to do that. Or I, I just said, that's the rule. It's very clear, and you have to make a decision. You know, are you, you going to chance it, or are you going to not do it? The only sure way to not get something to happen is to avoid it. And, you know, as you transition from being a high school student to being a, a grown man who's starting to make decisions about the, your future, you need to put yourself with the kind of people that are making better decisions than that. It is strict, but for a lot of these guys, the discipline and structure is what sets them apart when the employers come. The day of the career fair, all you gotta do is just walk through the gym and ask these companies, you're here from Kentucky, California, why? What do you, and they will tell you exactly why they come and try to hire Williamson guys. It has as much to do with the discipline and character pieces of these guys as it does to do with the specific skills they may have been trained in in their individual program. Here's one Williamson student on the day of his graduation. I had eight job offers when I took the one I have now, and they're still rolling in. I got a phone call yesterday for another one. How many college graduates have employers actively seeking them for employment? And I think that's one thing about this place. Like, besides everything else that this place has to offer, you will graduate with a job, guaranteed. If you want it, you got it. And we're going to continue with this story after a commercial break. And it came to us from one of our friends in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And his name's Mark Murray, and he told us about Williamson College of the Trades, and we jumped right on it. And some folks from there have visited Williamson and are now looking to bring its model to their community with a Catholic trade school called Harmel. Your community can do this too, by the way, and that's why we bring you these stories. Stories have a tremendous 
imitative power and just shipping our kids off to college to accumulate debt with no discernible skills after just can't continue. And we keep hearing this from our listeners. that This is such a big concern of theirs. And reach out to Mike Rounds, the president, and take a visit. Every region in America could use a Williamson College. By the way, I was particularly taken aback, not just that they're teaching the trades, but more important, they're teaching character. That suit thing is great. And I love it when Mr. Round said it changes how these kids view themselves, how they carry themselves, and how they think of themselves. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story of Williamson College of the Trades with Mike Rounds, the president. This is Our American Stories. Return to the story of Williamson College of the Trades, a trade school outside of Philadelphia, but not your ordinary trade school, folks, a, a product of great generosity and philanthropy. And we're talking to its president, former military man, Mike Rounds. Let's pick up where we last left off. Every day we go to a short 15-minute chapel before we head off to class at 8. And I get up early so I can get over there. <laughs> I'm a former military guy, so I'm used to, I get up at 4.30, <laughs> I get out and head over to the YMCA, get a workout in, get back and try to be over here a little before 7.30 so that I can start my day. Just just not, not to show my face there, but because I really, I think that's a unique part of being at Williamson is the opportunity to start each day in chapel thinking about what's really important. When you apply to Williamson, you don't have to say, I'm a Christian. But as part of the interview process, we tell you the things that are unique about Williamson, and that includes going to daily chapels. So although a student doesn't have to sign a profession of faith or stand up and say anything, they do understand that just like everything at Williamson, you can't opt out. So you are required to be there in your seat, ready to go when we start chapel at 730. Be respectful, stay awake. But for the guys that have that peace in their life, it's a great connecting point. There's a lot of fellowship opportunities so that, to me, is something I really love about Williamson. It's pretty special. It's pretty special of President Rounds, too. Most college presidents aren't involved with the students like this. Service is also one of our core values, and we have a whole week to May after final exams. We take the next week, and everybody gets involved in a service project. Staff, faculty, students, off campus, all around the area. And just the idea of, like, hey, Guys, you know, uh, Mr. Williamson and many others have made this possible for you. So now give back yourself. Make that part of who you are. Serve your community. Find places where you can contribute your skills, talent, time, whatever. Pay it forward. Here's some more Williamson students on the day of their graduation. My roommate, Richie, I think it might have been freshman year or junior year, he pulled over on the side of 202 and fixed somebody's flat tire. And every time I'm driving, I look for somebody on the side of the road. If they have a flat tire, I, I try to stop if I can, or even just someone needs money. Like, you see somebody struggling with gas, if they're five bucks in there, it's just a little stuff that, like, becomes a habit. Like, I want to do it now. And I truly think it's the people around me and this place that makes me do it. You create that culture by two things, I think. First, being together. If you came here with a family that's falling apart or struggling, you come here and you build another one. 
I don't think this place would work if we just had these guys show up in the morning, take a couple classes, and then just go back to wherever they came from. They live together in dorms of 24 with a dorm parent that lives there full-time with them. They do everything together. Over three years, they build very strong bonds. Uh, my experience freshman year, my grandfather passed away, and I was pulled out of class early morning. And by the time I got to the hospital, I checked my phone, and I had several texts from about 20 to 30 different guys asking me how I'm doing, how you're holding up, is there anything we can do? And I was with my immediate family, but I knew in the back of my head, you know, I got another family back at school that they're really there to help me. So that's, that hit hard. We call it a brotherhood, right? I mean, that's what we tell them. This is a brotherhood. Like, your buddies you hung out with in high school are not living their life to the same standard you are. I had uh, a close friend, well, still my close friend, in uh, high school, senior year. Um, when I told him I was thinking about coming to Williamson, you know, first thing was also a boys' school. You know, high school, that's the last thing you want to hear for college. <laughs> but I forgot all um, that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, the three years, the three, now I'm in my third, well, now I'm a graduate, actually, and uh, which is awesome. I'm a graduate, and, uh, you know, he's, he's just like, oh, man, I wish I went to that school. You know, he owes crazy amounts of money. He's struggling in school. He's struggling to keep up with the payments. And now it's just like, he's looking at me and he's like, you're about to graduate. You know, so if I could talk, or you're a graduate, I'm sorry. So if I could talk to, uh, <laughs> if I could talk to, um, if I could talk to any high school student, I would tell them, make the mature decision. You know, it's hard to get through to them because they're coming out of high school, but you gotta really look at yourself in the mirror and say, Am I going to the NBA? Am I going to the NFL? <laughs> Am I going to be this big music star? Or, you know, I'm not saying not to chase your dream, but Williamson will, it'll give you direction. It'll put you in a position. Something small as, uh, you know, going to North Dakota for the summer. That was a, like I went to North Dakota for a summer to work, and I had never been on a plane before. You know, it was my first time getting on a plane was through Williamson. I got that experience through Williamson, so it's just, I think they should make the mature decision. You gotta really look at yourself in the mirror and say, what do I need to do as a man? <clears throat> Not as what I'm seeing on television or what I see in movies or what this kid did or that kid did, because you gotta make the decision for yourself, so. That is the environment we wanna create. And, you know, it can be tough. I mean, in an environment like that where there's a lot of rules and a lot of consequences when you don't meet, it can become kind of a negative, right? At the worst, it could almost become like a prison camp environment, but it's not, just like it's not at a military academy because the focus of what we're trying to teach them in leadership, so with the seniors, as you progress through as a freshman, you're in the shop at the same time as the seniors. So the seniors are responsible for training the freshmen, directing them to lead it with a positive attitude, but to direct somebody, to inspect their work, to correct them when they need it. But in the big picture, right, to be enthusiastic. And, and what you want is that freshman looks at that senior and says, wow, that guy is so squared away. That guy, I want to be like him when I'm a senior. That's what you want. My freshman year coming in, it was always like watching the seniors. Like, I was always looking at the seniors, just paying attention. Even when they didn't think we was paying attention what they was doing. And it just really hit that, uh, you know, as a senior, to lead, you can't 
just tell, we was, you can't just tell the freshmen to do this. You have to tell them to do this and then they have to see you doing what you told them to do on a daily basis. And that's, uh, you know, that's something, that's one of the core values that has stuck with me too, integrity. I mean, any, any leader can lead through fear and intimidation and being negative. There's a way to get somebody to do something, but when you lead by example and are a role model and inspire and motivate, then people will run through walls for you. And that's the culture we're trying to build here at Williamson as we train our students through a three-year leadership program that culminates in them basically being in charge in the shops and working with the freshmen. We have five of our trustees. It's kind of neat. We have 20 trustees, 10 that are just love our mission, have no connection to it family-wise. Five that are sons of graduates, right? Their dads came here. They didn't go here, but because their dads did, they were very successful and they had other opportunities and they themselves were successful. But they say that Williamson altered the path of my whole family by my dad coming here. And then five that are graduates, including our chairman, who is Bill Bonneberger, was a brick mason from Tamaqua, cool country, and came here and went to work for Toll Brothers for six years and met his wife there. And the two of them decided to quit and start their own home building company and they're now like the 10th largest home builder in the Philadelphia area right and then Art Lalo is class of 79 PhD Art Lalo he it is a great story too because he he was a he was a machinist and he <laughs> he's sitting in the last week of class before graduation at the time and a Boeing guy comes in and says who wants to work for Boeing and Art's like hmm, that sounds like a good company I'll raise his hand and a guy took down a name and said, all right, show up Monday at this gate, come in, blah, 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 do this. And then he walks out of the room. And Art said, uh, told the shop instructor, so is that the interview Monday? He goes, no, that was the interview. He's expecting you to start work Monday at Boeing. So, <laughs> so Art graduated Saturday, went to work for Boeing. He's still working there 32 years later. He went to night school on Boeing's dime for 22 years. He got a bachelor's, two masters, and a PhD, and is an adjunct professor at Widener in addition to being a senior project manager. We got Tom Goki, who's class of 81, a machinist who's the president and CEO of Millicron. And Millicron's headquartered in Cincinnati, has I think 7,500 employees worldwide, and he's president and CEO. And then John Barnes, power plant class of 84, is the COO of Exelon. And Exelon is a monstrous company, but he's the COO, right? So all those guys can stand in front of our students and say, hey, I started just like you. And the things they're teaching at Williamson will give you the tools to be as successful or more successful than, than I have been. So it's up to you. Again, it's about them coming in here with little confidence and then seeing as they build their own confidence and seeing the opportunities. It's a neat thing to see. Uh, you're literally breaking a cycle of poverty for most of these kids. And great job, as always, to Alex, who brings us such interesting stories. And this is a great one, folks. And again, you know, we hope people will copy this. If you've got some net worth or know somebody who does in your community, my goodness, take a visit to this remarkable school, Williamson College of the Trades, and Mike Rounds would be happy to hear you. And if you're listening and you want to just send a donation, well, Williamson College of the Trades, Google it, send a check, and your money will go to good use. You heard it in the voices of those young folks. By the way, Dr. Jack Templeton of the Templeton Foundation got to know Williamson and his foundation. He wondered whether they were actually getting the results that they thought they were, so he commissioned a three-year multi-million dollar project with Tufts University to study Williamson and a few other comparable schools and found that on average, Williamson was just killing it. 
Their students scored higher on character attributes like reliability, excellence, competence, and connection to other students. And my goodness, these are big deals. Tufts also concluded that Williamson's system of structure and rules and its brotherhood environment were very important to the cultivation of the character we just talked about. This is Our American Stories, the story of Mike Rounds, the story of Williamson College of the Trades, and in the end, the story of American generosity, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and it's time for our American Dreamers series and that's sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network and today our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of an oil man out of Midland, Texas named Jim Henry. In 1984 all the bankers and all the consultants were predicting that the price of oil was going to continue to go on up. It was about $30 a barrel and it was going to go up to $100 per barrel, except a consultant called Henry Grappi. And Grappi predicted that it was going to tank. And instead of trying to predict what the price would be, I said, what would happen if the price goes up? And I'd say, well, I'd be a lot richer. What if it goes down? Well, I'd be broke. So I better prepare for if it goes down. I don't want to be broke. I've got a saying in there that says, I'd rather be around than rich. <laughs> so I sold half of our oil, and then 1986, it went through the floor. Everybody was wrong except Henry Grappi. So we were able to withstand that. We had 30 people in our company. We had to let 15 go because we couldn't afford them. Now, the emotional toll was terrible. Firing good people that have helped our company a lot and then have to go out and try to find a job. There were no jobs in the oil industry. And I didn't think that was very ethical for us to do it, but it's kind of like throwing people out of a lifeboat to keep the lifeboat afloat. And we vowed from that day to this that we would never, ever let an employee go because we didn't have enough money. Then when we hired a consultant named Walter Scott, and he said something that revolutionized our company. He said, Jim, when you're doing well, pay your employees more. <laughs> I said, that, that makes sense. <laughs> so we started an incentive compensation program. And then when our company does well, our net worth increases. The employees get a quarter of that increase. So then we have 75% of the increase to help continue to grow the company. So. We made lots of millionaires, probably about 50, I guess. It's really rewarding. See, that I means some people in our accounting department have lake houses, so <laughs> that's, <laughs> we try to make sure that everybody be taken care of, not just the top people. So I asked Jim, what are their bonuses typically like? Probably twice their salary. I mean, get their salary plus another. 
Uh, in the really good years, they'll get twice their salary and bonuses and people <coughs> pay off their house. Jim then turned to his team member and asked her this. Have you all paid up your house yet? She then nodded her head up and down. <laughs> My father was uh, born in Marion, Kentucky, and he in high school read a book called Soldiers of Fortune by Richard Harding Davis. And it was about mining engineers that went to South America. So he decided in high school that he's going to become a mining engineer and go to South America. So he actually did that. Uh, and he, nobody from Marion, Kentucky had ever gone to college. So that was something very new for the whole city. When he was getting ready to go to college, he worked all summer long for a farmer to pay his way through college. And at the end of the summer, the farmer said, I'm sorry, I don't have any money, I can't pay you. He got paid zero. A lot of people would have taken that, well, it's God's will that I not go to college. But he didn't, he, very stubborn. So he started college broke, borrowed money from an uncle of his and uh, bought a paper route and threw papers all through college. He got his engineering degree. He went to Columbia, where I was born, in the jungles of Columbia, way up in the Andes. We were out dredging all the rivers for gold and platinum. We went swimming in a local pond that had a waterfall. Then we found panthers, but they had a den really close to where we were swimming. So that was interesting. It was an exciting place to be. Yeah, that's uh, one way to look at it. Jim could have died. I was five years old when we left to go back to the States. And we always went to church and liked the singing in the church. And, and I got to really like the preacher's daughters, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> and he dated a few, which must have kept Jim on the straight and narrow. Uh, well, no, not necessarily. <laughs> I was a junior in high school and I had two years of paper I I made about $100 a month and saved most of it to go to college. I had about 130 people on my paper route, rated in one to 10, and 10 being great and one being terrible. And you had the great ones and you had the terrible ones. It was, it was always a uh, spectrum. I guess my worst one was one guy that I collected by the week. And he owed me for five weeks. And he said, come back tomorrow and I'll pay you. I came back tomorrow and he had moved. So. <laughs> So that would be a one. It taught you a lot about people collecting for the paper. When I graduated from college, Bob Landenberger and I were working for a solar oil company and their primary investor went broke. So I was without a job and Bob Landenberger was out of job and we got together and we said, uh, why don't we start our own company? And we said, yeah, we could. That'd be, that'd be a good thing. So I went to Paula, my wife, and asked her, what do you think? She said, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Let's do it. When we started, we had a plan that we'd go on a half a sheet of paper. One, become consultants, till we could become all operators, and two, to become an oil company where we had working interest. So we went out and had no money had no savings, and he had uh, 
six kids and I had two kids. And we had absolutely no money to start out with and no way to get any money. If we don't make money, we don't eat. That's very rigid. That's a lot of pressure. But we kind of enjoyed it. It was kind of fun. Adventures. <laughs> and what a voice you're hearing. And it's not just a, well, it's just not a Midland, Texas voice. It's an American voice. It's an American entrepreneur's voice. And so many of those voices sound the same. More of Jim Henry's story here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we return to the story of Jim Henry and you know we had talked about that voice of the American entrepreneur earlier and just how much it pained him to lay somebody off and how he vowed to never do that again and by the way I just love that line I'd rather be around than be rich and that's uh it's true and so let's go back to West Texas and to the story of Jim Henry we like to hit singles and doubles we don't go for home runs, except when you get a slow, fat one right over the plate, knock it out of the park. And we did. We have always been drilling in the Sprayberry Formation. Sprayberry is the name of a certain level of rock and sand below the Earth's surface in the Permian Basin. For 50, 60 years or so, we drill down through the wolf camp another level of rock formation, and yet another interesting choice in name. Which is below the spray break. And we would get very little oil out at all. You get a barrel or two out, and then it wouldn't produce any more. It was too tight. The ground was too tight. It wasn't permeable enough for a lot of oil to flow out of it. Even after what they call fracking, it's shooting a mixture of water, sand, and chemicals down the well to break up the rock. It wasn't until George Mitchell came along and figured out how to frack these sands. Mitchell, a then 78-year-old entrepreneur, was just trying to keep his company alive. And his team had this crazy idea to try a different mixture that was mostly water and give it a special friction reducer that allows it to be pumped at a much higher pressure, what they decided to call slick water fracturing. Everyone thought it was crazy because the water would just bounce with crazy speed off the rock and shoot back up, flooding out the well. But it worked like crazy. The slick water seemed to go out in every direction in the rock, creating complex mini networks of cracks and enabling the gas to flow to the surface. It took 18 years for him to figure it out, but he's the one that did it. He needs to get more credit for that. In 2000, virtually no one knew what Mitchell's team was up to, and those that did still thought they were crazy. <laughs> but an unknown guy named Dennis Phelps was also open to trying anything. He had talked to George Mitchell, and he knew the Mitchell technique. 
Phelps was working for an energy company called Arco and was just starting to have some success with slick water experiments in the Wolfberry, the combined nickname for the Sprayberry and Wolfcamp formations, until he was told to stop. In about 2000, Arco sold out to BP, and BP decided they didn't want to do the Wolfberry which led to Dennis Phelps deciding to take an early retirement package. Disheartened, he moved across the state to East Texas and hoped to start a consulting business. A year into it, it wasn't working out so well, and so he called a friend from his old church in Midland, Dennis Johnson, who just happened to be the president of Henry Petroleum. Johnson decided to give Phelps $500 a day to consult on a rather humdrum project. But a year goes by and Henry Petroleum is offered the opportunity to drill on a former Arco lease only two to three miles from where Phelps had his experiments. And so they called him in. And we got Dennis Phelps to show us how he did it with Arco. And so we did it that way. And then we got better and better at it. We drilled it two wells, 16 miles apart. And they both turned out really good wells. Typically, when you're outlying the boundaries of an oil field, it's a lot smaller. One miler is the most, so we had a huge field. At 16 miles wide, Jim estimated that it had about 3 billion barrels of oil in it, which would have made it the largest discovery in the area in 50 years. And we thought that maybe the whole Midland Basin would be good for the Wolfberry. So we started branching out, drilling in different places, and it all turned out good. And so they wanted more land in the area to explore. And they had to do it all in secret so that their competitors wouldn't catch on. They weren't even allowed to tell their closest family and friends about their new endeavor. Geologists and engineers were told to keep maps and well logs locked in their desk drawers, only to be taken out when needed. And Jim's seven so-called landmen and seven freelancers went out pouring over deed records in county courthouses, hunting down the names of the landowners in the area, and had to convince them to lease the mineral rights below their land. If there was something there, the landowner would get a nice piece of the action too, 25% of all oil and gas revenue from their land. And they got a lot of land. We acquired 330,000 acres, leased it, a tremendous amount. That's most amount I've ever heard anybody leasing. That's about 20 square miles. And then we drilled on it. Nobody believed us. They couldn't believe that we were actually making really good wells. And plus, we put it in sprayberry fields. So people said, oh, Jim's just drilling sprayberry wells. They're not very good. They didn't know it was a, a new technique, a new way of doing it. We were making a lot of money, and they didn't know it. So for three years, we had it all to ourselves. Now, well, when I drilled two wells 16 miles apart, we discovered over a billion barrels of oil, which is a tremendous amount of oil. 
And I said, if it's going to be about three or four billion barrels of oil come out of this field, and I was wrong, it's about 30 or 40 billion barrels of oil that's going to come out of the field. And we had 10 rigs running at one time and 100 people, and we said, we don't like big. I didn't know the names of all the people in our company, so we decided to sell. So we did. We sold out to Concho, and we started a foundation where we can give back to the city that gave us so much. The mission of the Henry Foundation is refreshing for how short, simple, and to the point it is. Focusing resources to change lives. That's it. It says it all. Let's see. Focusing resources to change lives. Five. I believe that you should talk in five words or less. And whenever I talk to the Lord, he's very direct and doesn't speak in very many words. But the idea is uh, stitch in time saves nine. You put fences at the top of a cliff to prevent Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, campfires. Those people prevent boys and girls from going astray. And instead of paying for an ambulance, because ambulances are extremely expensive, you can save 10 lives at the top of the hill, and so you don't have to do all this ambulance at the bottom of the hill. Jim could have held on to his discovery for longer and potentially made more money from it, but the price of oil was at the high price of $145 a barrel, and he wanted to make sure that his employees would benefit from the fruits of a high sales price that this would generate. What ended up being $584 million. The top 20 probably all got over a million dollars each. And the rest of them got to three or four times their yearly salary. So we made a lot of people happy. When <laughs> Plus for Jim, working was never really about making money. At least not in the way that you might think. We weren't really interested in making a bunch of money. But uh, I'll take that back. I was interested in making a bunch of money because the foundation can use the money. We started back over with 20 people and then got it going again. It did very well in two more years, sold out again. Then from then, it was hard to get back in after that. And we finally got back in and now we're going very strong. We have about 50 people right now. What we're doing in the industry is, is providing cheap fuel to heat homes and, and provide fuel for cars to run. We're making oil cheaper. It's now cheaper than it was for the last 20, 30 years. And when we come back, you'll hear more about Jim Henry, this Texan's life, an American life, a classic American dreamer's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and now for the final portion of oil man Jim Henry's remarkable American Dreamer story. Jim Henry is all about adventure. Love the, uh, the quote from Helen Keller, security is merely a superstition. It doesn't exist in nature. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. So I had to ask him, what's your best adventures? Look behind you. <laughs> behind me was a wall that was full of pictures of Jim's greatest adventures. One is me repelling off of the Wilco building, which is 22 stories. Uh, another is me hang gliding uh, over in Cabo San Lucas, I think. And then every five years on my birthday, I jump out of a plane. I've done that when I was 75 and 80. Now I'm going to do it when I'm 85, which would be uh, about a year away. So, <laughs> uh, The most uh, thrilling adventure was jumping off of a 140-foot bridge, bungee jumping off a 140-foot bridge. And uh, I have a fear of heights. So there I am standing on the edge of that, holding on to the back end. And he, he said, you can let go now. <laughs> So I, that's it if I'm going to do it. I, I also have a background, some in the theater. And in the theater, you learn how to get rid of your fears. And uh, you, you just go at it as hard as you possibly can go. So I dived as hard as I could. I, I jumped as hard as I could. And it turned out great. So. Jim got this sense of adventure from his old man. In South America, he would tell us these willy-nilly stories about a little dog called willy-nilly, and, uh, and we'd lay in bed. It's always bedtime stories. And one day, Jim wasn't the one inside of the bed. He was the one on top of it doing the storytelling. I told willy-nilly stories to my kids, and I added a character. Uh, willy-nilly's a dog, and I added a rabbit thumper that is his best friend. Don't remember any of the stories. I made him up at the time. I just make up a different one every time. Just ask them what do they want to hear about. And so we'll make up a story about that. So then I started telling my stories to my grandkids. And Jim compared his storytelling craft to the songwriting craft of Buddy Holly, who had a live audience. And he'd write his songs, and the audience didn't like it. He would change it to make it better. Well, that's what I would do, too. If the, the kids started going to sleep, I would uh, <laughs> I'd, uh, make it more, more exciting. <laughs> I have one, uh, Justin, uh, he's, he's now 18, but uh, he'd go to sleep most every time, <laughs> regardless. <laughs> and my cousin said, where can I buy some of these willy-nilly stories? And I thought, well, maybe we should do something about that. So I started uh, tape recording the stories to live audience. Now, I'd tell a story based on what they wanted to hear. 175 stories. That Jim's recorded and has been able to turn into five books so far. He's got plenty more material to choose from for the next ones. And I've got this little feeling that Jim will be recording some more, too. We hope to maybe get 20 books at least. We can make two books a year. So that'd be another 10 years. Uh, I won't be around probably, but. <laughs> <laughs>
I happen to love adventure stories. And I see every children's adventure show I can see. I think Tangles is the best that's come out in the last five years or so. But I just love them and I plagiarize wherever I possibly can. So <laughs> you go into a different world like uh, C.S. Lewis, he goes through a closet, a wardrobe, and then a train station maybe. And I, I go through it by using a tornado sometimes. I go through it by falling down a hole like you do in Alice in Wonderland. You can go down into a mine or a cave. I have grandsons uh, that are just addicted to their iPhone and iPad or whatever. They're, and that's what they do. They come home from school and they, they just sit down and play on that. Uh, and I think they need uh, more adventure. They need to get out and get more into it. And reading books is a good way to do it too. A good way to inspire your own adventures and a great way to learn character through the stories. We try to make them subtle, not too in-your-face sort of thing, never lying, never deceiving people, always trying to do the right thing. It gets across in the books, I think, I hope, but it's more of, a, of an attitude, kind of, than telling each part, don't lie, don't the Ten Commandments and everything like that. Just like how they're having fun doing something right. At the time of our interview, Jim Henry was 84 years old, and he's still working full days. I work from about nine to five or so, something like that. I'm working on willy-nilly books. I'm working on our company. What's our company going to be doing? One of the reasons that Jim can keep working like this is his health. He's very intentional about it, and he encourages his whole team to as well, paying for everyone's gym memberships and for his top executives to receive health examinations and guidance from our friends at the Cooper Clinic, whose founder, Ken Cooper, invented aerobics and catalyzed this little thing we now know well as jogging. Oh. Cooper has kept me on the track of uh, keeping up my exercise regime. I want to keep our team in good health. And they go to Cooper Clinic and they tell them, well, you've got to lose 30 pounds. So, <laughs> and they do. I probably average five hours a week, five days a week, uh, an hour each time. I do swimming a couple of times. I play tennis once. I do the Swin Aerodyne about a couple of times. And sometimes I think I may overdo it. I hope not, but uh, my wife says I overdo it. So I do strength training twice a week, which I forgot to mention in the other things. I do push-ups and chin-ups and pull-ups and crunches and, let's see, bridges and uh, uh, what's the other thing? And bridges and, uh, but uh, I do, wall sets uh, and do all of those and so I used to do 15 chin-ups now I can only do five uh, because sometime along the way I, I, I just didn't keep it up but uh, I'll be up to 10 pretty soon I think. <laughs> <laughs> Will Jim Henry ever stop working out or working? No, no. Uh, I probably will not be able to work uh, after a while. Uh, 
and then I'll have to do something. Uh, but uh, it's too much fun. And what does Jim's wife Paula think about all of her husband's activity? Well, she said, uh, I married you for better or for worse, but not for lunch. So, <laughs> yeah. so she's glad I go to, go to work. <laughs> And great job, as always, on that, Alex. And by the way, those stories that Jim Henry was talking about, we've got copies here at the studio, and they're so good. The artwork is beautiful. The stories, well, he's right. Jim is right. Kids need to have more adventures in their lives. WillyNillyStories.com will inspire that way of thinking. WillyNillyStories.com. And Jim's story reminds us of well, the very first American Dreamers stories we had done here on Our American Stories, and that was the Home Depot story, the founding of this great American company. And that was Bernie Marcus, Ken Langone, and Arthur Blank, and all three of them. Well, the jobs they created, the tax base they created, the employees they took care of, the number of millionaires they created. And that's what Job Creators Network is all about, helping push policies that help small business owners grow their businesses into bigger ones. Jim Henry's story, an American dreamer's story, a Texas story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from arts to sports, from business to history, and everything in between. And we love to tell your stories, too. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And you know, if you've been a fan of the show, that we love talking about music here on this show. And this next story is about four exceptionally talented, though musically untrained people, who grew up in a comparatively small geographic region in the southern states of Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Tennessee. Their rural upbringings were colored by similar palettes made up mostly of poverty, music, and church. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of the Million Dollar Quartet. By sheer coincidence, December 4, 1956 became one of the landmark days in American musical history. The day started out innocently enough. As scheduled, Carl Perkins, already a star with his smash hit song, Blue Suede Shoes. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready. Now go, cat, go, but don't you step on my blue arrived late in the afternoon to work on new material for Sun Records at 760 Union Avenue in Memphis, Tennessee. Sam Phillips, the flashy, talkative owner of Sun Records, had brought in his latest acquisition, singer and piano man extraordinaire Jerry Lee Lewis, still known outside Memphis, to play the piano for a measly $15 session fee, though his career-making Sun single, Whole Lot of Shaking Going On, was set for release just a few weeks later. Come on over, baby. Whole lot of shaking going on. Here's the founder.
co-founder of Sun Records, Sam Phillips. Here was Carl doing a session, and we were using Jerry Lee Lewis as his piano player. This was before Jerry Lee had uh, a hit. Then in comes Mr. Presley. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just any way you do it, that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, Mama. Any way do. Philip's decision to sell Presley's contract to RCA in 1955 for only $35,000 is easy to question in retrospect. But it provided Sun Records with the operating capital it needed in order to record and promote the parade of future stars who had descended on Memphis hoping to follow in Elvis's footsteps. After chatting with Phillips in the control room, the three-hour jam session began. Phillips left the tapes running in order to capture the moment as a souvenir for posterity. At some point during the session, Sun artist Johnny Cash, already a star in his own right after his breakthrough hits Folsom Prison Blues and I Walk the Line, popped in, although Cash noted in his autobiography that it was he who was the first to arrive at Sun's studio that day. Because you're mine, I walk the line. Publicity-minded Phillips, startled that he suddenly had four titans in his studio called Bob Johnson, the entertainment editor of the Memphis newspaper. Johnson soon arrived at the studio with a photographer who took a picture of the four men singing. As Jerry Lee pounded away in the piano, Elvis slipped out. Good night, boy. Okay, I'll see you. Man. Come on. Glad to meet you. Glad to meet you all. Thank you, sir. See you. Thank you, bro. Cash claims in his autobiography that no one wanted to follow Jerry Lee, not even Elvis. The king could not believe the energy of Jerry Lee Lewis. That boy can go, Presley said. I think he has a great future ahead of him. The next day, the newspapers ran their story. With a headline that stuck in musical history, Million Dollar Quartet. The article contained the now well-known photograph of Elvis Presley seated at the piano, surrounded by Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, and Johnny Cash. As we just turn on the microphone and the tape and sing off microphone, they sang 90% hymns. The legend of the session grew. In 1969, a new owner went through the entire Sun Records catalog and found, amid 10,000 hours of tape, nearly one hour from the session that he issued as the Million Dollar Quartet. Over the years, more footage was discovered. Altogether, there are 46 musical tracks on the complete disc, but none are complete songs. There are starts and restarts of some songs and several versions of others. Many are interrupted by the chatter between the four men. Boys, it's fun. I like this. <laughs> Indeed, Carl. The Million Dollar Quartet album is a real treat for all music lovers. It presents the quartet of superstars when they were young and experimenting with their music in the tiny, isolated studio far from the arenas and heavily lit stages. 
The titles include On Jericho Road. And just a little talk with Jesus. Just a little talk with Jesus. Remember that? I once was lost in sin, but Jesus took me in. Well, then a little light from heaven filled my soul. He made my heart in love and wrote my name above. Well, just a little talk with my Jesus gonna make me cry. Here's Don't Be Cruel. guy out there was doing a takeover on me. Don't be cruel. He tried so hard until he got much better, boy. Much better than that record of mine. Oh, no, wait, wait, wait now. I mean, it's this way. He was real slender. He was, he was, he was a colored guy. Yeah. That what got me, he'd say, I don't want to be cruel. He's a Yankee, you know. <laughs> he had already, he had, he had already done Hound Dog and another one or two, and he, he, didn't, he didn't do too well, you know. He was trying too hard. But he done that don't be cruel. He was trying so hard that he got better, boy. <laughs> Woo. Man, he sung that just... song. <laughs> oh, man, that's classic. If you can't come around, at least please a telephone. That's a great song. Boy, he sung I went back four nights straight, man. I went back four nights straight and heard that guy do that. He said... He'd soften up, he'd say, I don't. He'd shake his head and say, I don't want no other love. Baby, it's just you are. He'd say, mmm, well then I don't want to stop thinking of me. Man, he sung a hell out of that song, man. I was on the table looking at him. <laughs> Get him off. Get him off. And brown-eyed, handsome man. Yeah. I never had a better time than yesterday afternoon when I dropped in to Sam Phillips' place, Presley told the Memphis newspaper. The beauty of the Million Dollar Quartet session is that it was not organized and the men performed without any rehearsal. Later, a critic for Rolling Stone magazine wrote that it provided a rare post-sun glimpse of Elvis Presley, momentarily free of the golden shackles of stardom and the manipulating grasp of his manager, Colonel Tom Parker. His singing, especially on the gospel numbers, is natural and relaxed. Here again is Sam Phillips. And I still look at that picture 
We all looked like country boys, and they were around the piano. Every person in that room was electrified, not just by Elvis, not by Johnny, not by Carl, not by Jerry Lee, but the fact that we were together, all of us in the place where it started for every one of them. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Story. And great work as always, Greg. And my goodness, think about it. Untrained guys draw a circle around Memphis, maybe 100 to 150 miles wide, 200, and you'd capture American music. And the names in that room, Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, none of them trained. And they spontaneously went to, well, gospel tunes. Interesting, at the same time, there were a lot of Christians around the country burning their records. And these guys were secretly singing gospel songs. You can't make that up, folks. The Million Dollar Quartet. By the way, just hearing those guys sing just a little talk with Jesus. My goodness, I want to hear more of that. The Million Dollar Quartet. The story of these four unique talents, American talents, here on Our American Stories. (laughs) 